This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. Tinker Taylor soldier Gav. I never have leaked anything from the National Security Council, nor would I ever leak anything from the National Security Council. Never would, never have. So why did the Prime Minister decide to sack her Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson? And what happens next? Well, the Prime Minister's made her decision. What I'm focused on is getting on with the job. It's 24 hours since the Prime Minister sacked her Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson. You'd have thought it was something from a John le Carre novel. He's lost his job because she believes he's the source of a leak from the National Security Council. But Gavin Williams says it wasn't him. Well, I'm joined by Chairman of the House of Commons Defence Committee, Dr Julian Lewis, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Dr Lewis, you, with your committee, are the most powerful defence voice in Westminster. Will you call, as a witness to your committee, the Daily Telegraph reporter, who wrote this story, find the truth? I don't think we will, frankly. I don't think this uh, leak or hunt or investigation is something that uh, the Defence Committee per se is likely to pursue. It's a very strange mixture of um, accusations that are being thrown around. People are talking in terms as if, like you say, it's a John le Carre um, spying drama. But in reality, what has been leaked here is political dissent. Uh, No one is suggesting that any secret intelligence has improperly been disclosed, and that, I believe, is the reason why I don't hear any serious suggestions that the police ought to be brought into the matter. In that case, this is not a matter for the Defence Committee. I don't really think it is. What is a matter for the Defence Committee is the substance of the issue about which they were having the argument uh, on the National Security Council, namely whether a Chinese communist-controlled telecommunications company ought to be allowed to penetrate even further into our telecommunications network that it was allowed to do originally in the early 2000s uh, almost in a fit of absence of mind and I can tell you more about that if you're yeah. interested. We'll talk a little bit later in the programme about yes. that. Um, you say the substance will remain at, uh, of, of, of this leak. The Prime Minister says the matter is closed though. Do you think that's the case? Obviously not in, in what you're saying. Well, w- no, but again, I, with respect I think we're confusing two separate things. Um, the Prime Minister is talking about the issue of who leaked, which minister supported uh, or opposed uh, the involvement of Huawei further in our telecommunications. That issue of the leak may be closed from the government's point of view. I very much doubt if it's closed from Gavin Williamson's point of view. But what certainly isn't closed is the argument about whether or not this company should be allowed to penetrate our critical national infrastructure further than it's already been allowed to do. Christopher Lee, let's turn the clocks back 18 months. A bit of a surprise appointment at the time, wasn't it? Well, it was, um, excepting that if you consider the, what was going on at the time, there were very few people that uh, she might have gone to, uh, and also she trusted him. 
Uh, he'd been part of uh, the, the, the team that got her elected. Um, he'd been a reasonably good chief whip, and the chief whip has the great advantage of knowing, as the as they say at Westminster, knowing where all the all the body parts are. And so he was he was on that particular board. What he hadn't done was driven uh, a big uh, uh, ministry. Uh, he got there, he was ignorant, he sat down very quietly, and he learned. And if you talk to people at the top, they say he's good news. Um, and he sees the issues that, that bothers them. You go and talk to, the, for example, the Royal Marines, and the Royal Marines say he saved the Royal Marines. Uh, he got them 1.8 billions, I think it was. I mean, uh, uh, Julian will correct me, but I think it was 1.8 billions, which they might otherwise not have had. And so a good all-round defence secretary. Julian Lewis, you were a fan, weren't you? And he made, yes. the, he made the job very much his own. Uh, yes, I entirely agree with what Christopher said. The the 1.8 billion was for a variety of things, actually, uh, not not just the Royal Marines. I'm pretty sure they'd have been even more delighted. They'd have thought how to spend but, it. <laughs> but but what he did do, and this of course may have something to do with his ultimate downfall. Uh, what he did do was uh, engage in something that I was hoping he would do, which was a bare knuckle fight with the Treasury. Hmm. Uh, you've had me on programme like this countless times and I've bored people to death by saying on numerous occasions that we spend far too little on defence and we ought to have a target realistically of 3%, not barely 2% of GDP. Now Gavin grasped this and he was willing to go in and fight and where he really may have created a, a, a deep hostility in the establishment was when he actually took on a, a dangerous scenario and extricated the Ministry of Defence from it. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm referring to the National Security Capability Review which was an overall review headed up by Mark Sedwell, as he then was in his capacity, as it then was only of National Security Advisor before he became Cabinet Secretary as well. And this review was basically a good idea to try and bring in all the elements of defence and security and look at the problems as a whole and come up with overall plans. That was fine. What was not fine was that the review was supposed to be financially or fiscally neutral. And that meant that if it were pushed into deciding, as there was every intention of doing, that more money needed to be spent on countering cyber warfare and boosting the intelligence services, every pound that went in that direction would be a pound taken away from the Army, the Navy or the Air Force. Mm. Uh, and what Gavin did, quite rightly in my view, was to strip out the defence elements of that review and make sure that there was a separate review for defence so that the defence budget could not be raided and further cuts including, as Christopher rightly says, the disastrous intention to destroy mm. our amphibious capability couldn't be inflicted on defence. There's another side of this, you know, Julian, and that is mm -hmm. what he did. He took on the Chancellor of the Exchequer mm -hmm. and the Chancellor of the Exchequer was the former Defence Minister, Defence Secretary. And therefore, he was taking somebody on who had a team around him who knew exactly how this gavotte should be danced out, and they lost as well. The other part of it is that uh, uh, Sedwell uh, was the Prime Minister's former civil servant yes. at the Home Office. 
And he lost a lot of credibility mm. because this man that they poked fun at and made, you know, made up names about him and said that he's best off sticking to buying fireplaces and all sorts of silly things like that. He walked right in and broke the rules, but didn't lose sight of what you're talking about, having read the House of Commons Defence Committee uh, notes on this. Just tell us a bit more uh, about the National Security Council, Christopher, and its importance. Well, the National Security Council was something that was set up by David Cameron when he was Prime Minister in 2010. And what it did, it gave the Prime, Prime Minister far more power, and it also, over security mat matters, for example, there are five subcommittees to this, and, for example, they, they look at things like Trident, they look at uh, 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 considerable ideas of what threats there might be, etc. But it also brought in other ministers. So other ministers would get a, a very good security idea, cabinet ministers, senior cabinet ministers, idea of what the whole thing was about, why we're having this sort of budget. And that would became extraordinarily important. I mean, when, for example, you wanted to, you wanted to look at, I mean, one of the things I was looking at, strategic defence and security of your in, in implementation, it's a whole subcommittee like that, which hadn't existed before. It sort of picked up on what the Americans were doing and, and has done it rather successfully. Mm. Julian Lewis, see, um, first mm. day in the job today for Penny Mordaunt, mm. uh, successor to Gavin Williamson. You like her too? Yes, I do. As, as it happens, I've known Penny since she was just a candidate in, in Portsmouth. Um, she boasts, uh, not to use the word pejoratively, of the fact that uh, her, her name, Penelope, uh, is uh, based on um, HMS Penelope, which was a ship in the Second World War that became known as the Pepper Pot because it was so badly damaged by shrapnel in its many battles. Uh, and she's very proud of uh, her name naval connections. She has been a Royal Naval Reservist uh, for many years. Uh, she has had a successful stint involved with the MOD previously. So in that respect, uh, they couldn't have made a, a better choice. Can she stay in the Royal Naval Reserve? Uh, she has done, as my understanding. Well, she um, certainly was as Minister of State, but can she stay as right. Secretary of State? Oh, can she stay now as Secretary of State? That I, I really don't know. Um, uh, it's certainly the case, for example, that the present Minister of State for the Armed Forces uh, holds a position as second in command of 77 Brigade. Mm. Um, it, I, I suspect that as Secretary of State for Defence, um, she might have her hands pretty full, um, but whether she would have to be uh, nominally uh, allowed leave of absence to do these other mm. duties, I don't know. I want to be there the day the first Sea Lord salutes. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be something to see, won't it? Well, let's turn our attention now to the possible reason behind the leak. The government's yeah. reported decision to buy a Chinese communications system that could get into British intelligence and security. Here's the Deputy Labour leader, Tom Watson, speaking in the Commons earlier today. At the heart of this battle in the National Security Council was whether the Prime Minister's judgement that Huawei should be allowed to be part of our critical infrastructure network was sound. Many believe it was not. Our Five Eyes partners are so concerned about the UK allowing this company to participate in our 5G network that they are considering whether they can safely continue to share intelligence with us. Well, joining us now is Professor Anthony Gleese from Buckingham University. Hello there. And behind all of this is the fact that all Britain's intelligence service allies have refused to let the Chinese into 5G contracts. Well, that's right. That's right. I mean, I, I, I would say that um, I, I disagree with my good friend, uh, Dr. 
Julian Lewis. He's here, he can uh, answer. <laughs> very, very strongly indeed as to the seriousness of uh, this leak. The National Security Council is at the apex of our national security policy machinery. If its security cannot be assured, uh, then our national security ceases to be secured. So to leak from it, it's not like leaking from the cabinet. It's a very, very serious thing. And I don't think it's just a disagreement. There is, a, uh, there is an argument to have about Huawei. And I happen to be on the same side as uh, I think Gavin Williamson uh, was on. But it shouldn't be uh, deduced from that that I think this leak was in any way acceptable. I think it was treacherous and treasonable, and it should not happen. Turning to Huawei, yes, you're absolutely right. It's about uh, balancing our economic needs, particularly post-Brexit, uh, our wish to be a global Britain trading on the international routes that 5G will create for us, as opposed to the security implications of taking materials from a company which, as Julian Lewis so rightly says, is in close cahoots with not just the Chinese Communist Party, but the Chinese People's Liberation Army and also the government of China. And that, it seems to me, is not just about future risk, it's about assessing properly the risks that already exist because we already have Huawei deeply embedded in our critical digital national infrastructure in this country. They've been let in because they offered us stuff on the cheap. That was a wrong decision taken by successive governments. They are already here. But with 5G, the risk to us is very much greater and we shouldn't be doing it, in my view. Dr Julian Lewis, uh, whoever actually did do this leak to the Daily Telegraph, do you think their intentions might actually have been right, given what you just heard? Yes, I, mu I must make it clear. I, I don't think Anthony and I are on such a different wavelength. I've said all along that I don't condone what's happened and that leaking from any of these committees of political information it, it should be a sackable offence. Um, however, I do think it's important to distinguish between leaking political information and leaking secret classified intelligence On the subject, though, on the, sub and on, on the subject of, of the actual thing, I, I was on the Intelligence and Security committee in 2013 when we carried out an in-depth classified study of how Huawei, as Anthony says, came to be involved wrongly in the first place. And this was all to do with a major contract that was um, uh, advertised in 2003 and signed in 2005. And it was only in 2006 that ministers were informed of the potential security implications of allowing a company like this to be involved. And um, one of the interesting aspects of the leak is the fact that the ministers for the three departments, to whom I think I'm right in saying pretty much all our intelligence agencies report, namely the Foreign Office, the Home Office and the Ministry of Defence, 
all of them were deeply concerned about the proposal that Huawei should be brought in. And it's ministers from the non-security-oriented mm. departments who appear to be overruling them with the support of the Prime Minister. Professor Anthony Gleese, what do you think the worst possible thing that could happen would be if this decision goes ahead to buy the Chinese communication system? Well, I think there are two bad things that would happen. The first would be that uh, the Chinese would be given access to our 5G network and they might try to do to us what they have done to the Organization of African Unity, to the Pakistani uh, telecommunications people, namely spy on us via the equipment that, that and the software that they've installed. The other bad thing that would happen to us would be that the United States of America would say to us, no, well, not, excuse me, not just say to us, would enact their threat not to continue to supply us with secret intelligence. The American supply of raw intelligence to the UK intelligence community, it stems from an agreement forged 70 years ago at Bletchley Park when it was the Americans that came knocking on our door. It was that way round. If the Americans were to deny us access to this intelligence, it would be a devastating blow, not just to our security in the United Kingdom, but to our ability to offer our protection and advice to allies throughout the world. And the Americans have done it. They did it in 1970, and we suffered badly from it. Now, in the very, very choppy waters which a Brexited Britain would enter, when we need good partnerships, and particularly with the United States of America, however much we might object to the present incumbent of the White House, the State Department, the high offices of the American state are our good friends. To be denied that intelligence would put the United Kingdom in a very, very bad place indeed. And nobody who takes the security of this country seriously should be in it doubt about the seriousness of that just as I am in no doubt about the seriousness of betraying the secrecy of the National Security Council. These things are very, very important. Now is a time of very grave crisis for our country and it is time this was properly understood. Professor Anthony Gleese from Buckingham University. Dr Julian Lewis, thank you both for your time today. Well, Gavin Williamson was only in the job for 18 months and during that time he took advice from various people in the defence field to get him up to speed on his brief. One of them was the former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett. He's spoken to our Westminster reporter, Laura Macon Isherwood. Well, I was very disappointed. Um, whichever way you look at it, it's a personal disaster for Gavin Williamson that his judgment clearly, in the Prime Minister's view, was wrong in this regard. Um, the Prime Minister felt she'd received compelling evidence that Gavin Williamson had leaked from the National Security Council. Now, that's uh, inexcusable. The net result is he's been sacked. And, of course, that's very disappointing and upsetting and disturbing for the Ministry of Defence as well and the Armed Forces to yet again have a new Secretary of State for Defence. It's a, it's a difficult portfolio. He came 18 months ago knowing virtually nothing about defence. Uh, in fairness to him, he listened and he learned. He particularly picked up the fact that defence was underfunded and was vigorous in conducting discussions with Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, to try and increase the resources for defence. But, uh, as we know, he was prone to put his foot in it from time to time, and I'm afraid on this occasion it would seem he's put his foot in it big time. Everybody that works in the Ministry of Defence is required to sign that Official Secrets Act, aren't they? So it would seem surprising that he might break that code? I'm not sure that he saw it like that. 
Of course, in the cold light of day, that's exactly how it is. It seems to be that we have government by leak from the Cabinet table as almost routine. I don't agree with that, but we should not have leaks from the National Security Council. By definition, the National Security Council is our highest national committee council, if you like, for dealing with issues of security and defence. What is discussed amongst that group of people within that room stays there. Something got out. That's not right. In his 18 months in post as Defence Secretary, do you think he made a difference? Because it is tricky, isn't it, to get decisions through government? Well, he made a difference in that when he took over from Sir Michael Fallon, Sir Michael Fallon had on his desk a list of very unattractive cuts in order to make financial savings to balance the Ministry of Defence's budget. Michael Fallon didn't like those things. Gavin Williamson didn't like those things either. So he fought pretty hard to try and turn some of those cuts around. And he was successful to the extent that the threat to our amphibious capability, 3 Commando Brigade and the um, amphibious shipping, uh, that would appear to have been removed. There are other issues still out there. And Penny Mordaunt now coming in as Secretary of State for Defence. And actually, that's a good appointment in many people's view because she knows the business. She was Minister of State for the Armed Forces for two years, 2014-2016, the number two position. She'll have to continue that difficult discussion with the Chancellor to say 2% of GDP spent on defence, and I'm not sure it's even 2%. Actually, that's not enough. We have never in our history since the Second World War spent as little as 2%. We need more for the safety and security of the citizens of this country and our islands. Lord Dannett there. Well, Gavin Williamson was often derided for his ill-judged comments to the media. Here's a reminder. It is absolutely atrocious, atrocious and outrageous what Russia did in Salisbury. We have responded to that. Frankly, Russia should go away. It should shut up. Do you regret using very casual Trump-esque language like shut up and go away? What was right is actually we came together with our allies and oh, made it absolutely answer, are you? clear okay. to Russia. All they right, couldn't they, act okay. in the, that right. behaviour, and All I right. think that was the right All thing right. to Interview do. Interview terminated because you won't answer the question. In the Euphrates Valley and surrounding areas. I found something on the web for in Syria. Syrian Democratic Forces supported by premonition. Um, what a very rum business that is. Siri getting in the way there for the former Defence Secretary. Well, Gavin Williamson was always happy to talk to reporters. As Laura Macon-Isherwood can testify, Laura, you interviewed him a lot. What was he like? I did interview him very often, actually. And to me, he just seemed like a man who really wanted to make his mark. He was friendly to journalists. He liked to build a relationship with them. He recognised everybody when you saw him, no matter if it was early in the morning, late at night, he'd always ask how you were and welcome you with a smile and a handshake. And he repeatedly told me that he thought he had the best job in government. And I firmly think that he he believed that. He did. And he wanted to make his mark. He wanted to make a difference for those that are in the armed forces. And he fought really hard for it. What was he like out and about with the troops? really friendly with them. He wanted to know what it was like to serve. He didn't have military links, he didn't have any experience himself, so he needed to learn quickly. And the best way for him to do that, he felt, was to ask those who were doing the job how they did it, what problems they had, and what uh, he could do to improve their lives. And that's what he took back into the Ministry of Defence, and that's the change that he then tried to create. Oh, Laura, thank you very much for that. The 70th anniversary fleet review of the Chinese Navy has taken place this week. President Xi Jinping took, took, took the salute. It's the biggest fleet of the Chinese Navy seen at sea and it's changing shape from the traditional Navy and modernising every single department from aircraft carrier to missiles. Well, Professor Eric Grove is a naval historian. Hello, uh, Professor Grove. Um, what do Hello. you see? Good afternoon. 
Hello. What do we see? Hello. What do we see? Well, well, uh, we saw the uh, the president on board on board the aircraft carrier Liao, Liao Ning. That's the first of what maybe four or six in the not too distant future. And uh, we saw the new zero five five class cruiser, a very impressive big surface surface combatant. And all the ships that the Chinese have built. In fact, the Chinese over the last ten years have built about a hundred warships. It's a a major program which far outstrips naval building elsewhere in the world. World. Christopher Least with us. Christopher, what did you make of it? What we're seeing in this in this Navy, uh, the plan is called the People's Liberation Army Brackets Navy, um, is now they can put together a review like this of 32 ships and uh, with in, into six groupings. 39 uh, aircraft, which are flying, naval aircraft, which are flying, not just sort of, uh, let's hope they do, um, with the, the building of new surveillance aircraft, which they can use in carriers, which is particularly important. Um, they've got the Liangping, which uh, uh, mentioned just then, which is really, you know, on its last legs. But nevertheless, it's it's good for training and being done in Hong Kong, uh, which you know, put a ship that size into Hong Kong is quite a statement, even even to your own people. Um, they've got operational submarines, seventy. Seven zero submarines, um, fifty maybe of them mod- quite modern submarines, um, and they're operating on new designs for missiles. But what they've done most of all, they've changed the shape of the navy. It's a bigger navy, bigger ship navy. At one time, it was lots of small ships, etc. China Sea coastal uh, commands. They've changed the shape of the navy. Therefore, they've changed actually the command structure and- of the navy. And when you look at the command structure. You see that it's a very deep sea fleet. In fact, it's, it's designed to go a long, long way. And they've got a base already in Djibouti uh, for, for quite a lot of it, including what the Royal Marines would like as a new uh, uh, a dock landing ship. And Professor Eric Grove, how is all of this impacting on Japan? Well, well, the Japanese are quite concerned. Of course, they have their own naval naval build-up. Uh, uh, they're building ships which are really aircraft carriers. Um, and in fact, China has has begun to say that they need to equal Japan in this with two aircraft carriers. So they need, so they need at least two uh, two of themselves. The Japanese fleet is very powerful. In fact, we are now facing a world where the most powerful navies in the world are in the Far East. And as a lot of the American navy is not deployed we do see a, an enormous growth in naval power in that region. Uh, the Americans you know, uh, will have to watch out. And also, of course, if we send our carrier out there, the competition is quite serious. We, we shan't dominate the area like we used to in the past. And what the, I mean, what the Japanese are doing uh, is, is changing the way they operate. They're modifying, for example, their Zumo helicopter carriers, uh, the two of them. Uh, to operate fixed-wing aircraft, F-35s, you know, things that we think are fantastic. Uh, they um, reckon on having probably in about sort of six or seven years 140 of these aircraft. Now, some of them uh, are, f- are conventional fi- fixed-wing, um, but they also put alongside them, if you've got aircraft carriers like that or ships you're going to use as aircraft carriers, you're going to have to start a new plan for multi- they call multi-mission uh, frigates. And it's not simply a plan that they think that's what they're going to need. They've actually put it in, in, uh, in into operation. And so now, if you think about then operating fixed-wing aircraft of this sort of power with these sort of ranges, you haven't seen that since the Second World War. Eric Grove, uh, how concerning do you think this build-up of naval powers is in this part of the world? 
Well, I think it's it's a. Uh... It's quite significant. I mean, it demonstrates that there is now a huge arms dynamic in the area. The Chinese Navy, as Chris says, is becoming a global force. It's getting bases. It's now a blue water Navy in the fullest sense of the word. And the Japanese are quite concerned about that. And of course, there are the Indians too, who are also concerned. So we have an increasing emphasis on naval power in the region, uh, in uh, in the um, in Asian waters, and this is really going to be the focus of naval competition for the next decades. All right, Professor Eric Grove, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you for your time today, uh, Christopher. Let's return to our top story: uh, the sacking of Gavin Williamson, the Defence Secretary. Um, Sunday papers. What do you think they'll be saying? Do you know? Do you know how an editor works? Oh, we should, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> comes in half eleven. Coffee. Stop it now. <laughs> I, eyelids one. You might open. be listening. You never know. Listen, uh, editor of the Sunday Telegraph. If I were editor of the Sunday Telegraph, I'd take the guy that wrote the story in the first place, and I'd stick him in a hotel somewhere outside Grimsby with his expenses to do, keep a low profile, and then on Sunday, when everybody's thinking, where do we go from here? This guy will have written, and it'll be the splash. Mm. Here is my tape of what the then Defence Secretary said. And I'll promise you, it wasn't him. Now, that would be a great story. That we could will... do for Mrs. Mrs. May what Brexit hasn't done. It could get her on the bus could be very interesting. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Uh, have you, if you've got an opinion on anything in the programme, send us a tweet at BFBS Sitrep. Join us again at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. I'm Kate Jabot. Bye bye for now.